Today's scripture is Matthew chapter 9, verses 18 through 26. While he was saying this, a synagogue leader came and knelt before him and said, My daughter has just died, but come and put your hand on her and she will live. Jesus got up and went with him, and so did his disciples. Just then, a woman who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak. She said to herself, If I only touch his cloak, I will be healed. Jesus turned and saw her. Take heart, daughter, he said. Your faith has healed you. And the woman was healed at that moment. When Jesus entered the synagogue leader's house and saw the noisy crowd and people playing pipes, he said, Go away. The girl is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took the girl by the hand, and she got up. News of this spread through all that region. All right, good morning. How is everybody? Glad you're here. Um, This is our passage today, Matthew chapter 9, and this one's sort of like broken into four acts, this, this sermon. It's like This American Life. Act one, we're doing... Okay, so um, we're going to do a few things uh, with this passage. First off, we're, we're going to sort of look at all the characters, and I want to try to put you in the setting of what was happening there. Um, there's going to be some stuff about like the Jewish honor system and, and with stuff we've talked about before. Um, and if, if you're new here, you could catch up on the podcast. And uh, my name's Tommy. Nice to meet you. Um, and... Uh, then I'm actually going to try and look at the passage as a whole. I'll tell you why we need to look at it as, as one big piece, not a bunch of little pieces. Um, there's a literary device that kind of links it all together. We'll go into that. And then I'm going to look at it from different, different theological perspectives, uh, depending on what your like, theological tradition is. Um, I'm a student of biblical interpretation. Like that's studying how people have read the Bible from... Reformed all the way to like African American, even to feminist perspectives, like everything. Like that's I, I gather it all. I that's one of the things I do. I try to understand like how has this passage been viewed throughout history. Here we are. What does this mean for us? And I'm going to end it with sort of like a how I think we should look at it today. Um, so uh, glad you're here. I'll pray. Let's get started, shall we? Uh, Father, thank you for this place. Thank you for these people. Guide our time together, um, bring us together in unity, bind us in love and in truth, um, help us to be present and at peace with where we are right now, knowing that you are guiding, you are leading, you are moving things in your direction that you want us to go. Um, help us to be open to whatever you have for us to learn, whatever you have for us to change, let us change it. Let us not find ourselves in, in, uh, in the same place we were last year, the year before, let us be constantly moving towards likeness of you, um, towards a life that is more Christ-like. Um, and uh, may we not be so dug in in our ideas and our ideologies that, that you can't speak to them and, and, uh, and, and just change them if you, if you so please. Let us be open to you. Uh, reform us, change us. Thank you. In your name, amen. Okay, so here we go. We're going to start... Um, in verse 18, while he was saying this, hold on, so while he was saying what? Um, Jesus has been teaching, remember last week there was this passage that Jesus went into about 
wine and wineskins, he's basically explaining to the people he's doing something new. He's not doing something that's meant to patch up the old system of Judaism. He's going to kick the doors open. He's going to do something wildly new. He's not going to use the same people that were used before by God. He's not even saying that they're bad. He's not saying he's trying to destroy them. He literally says, success will be when both are preserved. Um, He says it in a more Jewish way than that. Um, But that's pretty much the gist of it. Um, He's going to do something new. And so while he's describing this new, whole new thing that he's doing, um, Matthew transitions into the next story. Uh, Matthew is not writing in a chronological order. If you read the other synoptic gospels, synoptic means like synonym, like the same. There's, there's three that use the same sort of source material when they wrote their gospel. They used the book of Mark. Um, and they added in like their memories of following Christ and the things that they've learned. So the synoptic gospels kind of look the same, except they are, there are differences throughout them. They kind of focus on different things. Matthew um, puts this story right after that teaching to now display some of the new stuff that Jesus is doing. So here we go. While he was saying this, a synagogue leader came and knelt before him and said, my daughter has just died, but come and put your hand on her and she will live. Several things here. Um, uh, Okay, well, before I get to that, let's let's look at who the guy is and then these things will make more sense. Um, So first I wanted to show you uh, one of the synoptic gospels, uh, the retelling of this story in the book of Mark. It tells us the guy's name. One of the synagogue leaders, a man named Jairus, came, uh, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. Maybe Mark knew the guy personally and knew his name. Maybe Matthew did not. Um, We don't know. Um, But Matthew doesn't include his name, possibly because he's meant in the book of Matthew to stand for religious leaders in general. Um, So this guy Jairus, he's a leader in the synagogue. Um, uh, In the ancient synagogue, this guy would be sort of like in like a mega church setting, it would be like the executive pastor. You know, he doesn't preach and teach, but he like runs the church, right? He like, he's in charge of, this guy Jairus would have been in charge of like the upkeep of making sure everything is running smoothly. He would book all the speakers, the, the preachers, because the synagogue is not the temple. They're two different things in case you didn't know this. Um, the temple is where the sacrifices were, were, were offered, where the priests worked. The synagogue is where theology happened. The people gathered regularly several times uh, a day sometimes and different speakers would come in and they would teach and they would sort of argue and bicker back and forth about different ways to read the Bible. Um, Their Bible, which was the Hebrew text, the Old Testament. And this is what they would do. This man was in charge of running the whole thing. Um, Bookkeeping, all of it. Um, He was a, a man of high honor. And in the first century, again, the patriarchal honor system, the most important thing was for a man to have the most honor he could possibly get. This man was high up on the list. Once you attain that honor, you never would do anything to jeopardize it because this is all you desired in the world. This opened you, you up to a whole new way of life. And anyone who was dishonored would lose their job, would lose their community, would lose everything. This guy had a lot of honor. But in this story, he runs up to Jesus and... It says he knelt before, like the, the, the text says, um, he came and knelt before Jesus and said, my daughter has just died. So first off, he, he's kneeling before Jesus. I'll tell you why that's something he would never do in just a second. Um, <clears throat> first off, you wouldn't kneel before anybody um, in, in, like this man because he's pretty high up. Second, he tells Jesus to come and lay hands on his daughter. His daughter, he says, is dead. Come lay your hands on her. 
This is a huge deal. Um, because a Jewish person cannot touch a dead body or they become unclean. When you become unclean, you lose a bit of that honor. Like one of the bragging rights you had as a Jewish man would be like, I haven't been unclean in however long. Um, and he's asking this man, he's getting on his hands and knees, humiliating himself in front of everyone, saying, come and touch my daughter. Lay your hands on her. I believe you can heal her. Another problem with this is that this man likely viewed Jesus as a complete heretic because Jesus actually in his day was a heretic. He says, the Bible says this, but I say this. And everyone's like, whoa, 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 whoa. You can't do that. He's like, well, I'm doing this anyway. Moses has told you this, and I'm going to say this. I'm going to take what Moses says, and I'm going to say, here's what he was after. Here's what actually God is after. Um, And he's going to shift the whole sort of thing in a whole new direction. This was really offensive to the Jewish establishment. Um, Jesus was, for all intents and purposes, if somebody did this today, and they do, we, we call them heretics. And Jesus was, in his day, offending all of the religious leaders Basically, as a heretic, this man comes out of the temple, out of the synagogue, runs up to Jesus. He's the leader of the synagogue, and he begs the heretic healer from Nazareth, Jesus, to heal his daughter, to, to lay hands on his daughter and to heal her. So this is a, a shocking story all around for anyone in the first century listening to this story so far, like, and we're just getting going. Um, it, gets, it goes, from here, it's way downhill. So... Um, The first thing I kind of want you to ponder in your mind is like, is your response to like all things being equal, you're in the place of Jesus and you're teaching here, here's what I believe, here's what I believe God has put me here to do. Um, I'm, I'm helping people. I believe that this is what the world needs and I'm teaching this thing and everyone's against me and the leader of the people who are against me has just come to me for help. How do you respond? Most of us, say, that's just kind of what you get. Most of us have no desire to help anyone who is purposefully against us, trying to wreck everything we're doing, um, spreading slander about us. Most of us want no part in helping them. And most of us honestly sit around sort of, I hope one day they get their comeuppance, stuff like that. Um, Not that any of you would say comeuppance. Um, (laughs) And, unless you're being ironic. Um, now, I, I, I have a hard time with, one, with like trying to figure out like how would I respond to this. I, I think it would be very difficult to say, yeah, okay, doesn't matter everything you, you, you and your people have done to me, I'm, I'm come on over. But uh, Jesus doesn't seem bothered by the offenses of people against him. He doesn't seem bothered by those who don't understand what he's doing. He seems to understand that they're not going to understand. And he says, well, great. Now I can actually show what I do to this guy. And he moves forward and he decides to follow this man back to his, his place. Um, so next passage, uh, uh, 9, 19 through 21. Jesus got up and went with him and so did his disciples. Just then, verse 20, just then a woman who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak. She said to herself, if I only touch his cloak, I will be healed. So this woman has um, what in the, early, in the early sort of first century would be a terrible, terrible, um, humiliating disease. 
Um, we're not positive what this is. There's a lot of scholars who have done a lot of work here and try to figure out what exactly is going on. Um, there's stuff written about this in the, in the Talmud, which is an ancient sort of uh, uh, Jewish commentary on the Old Testament. Um, it was a thing that happened a lot back then. And um, so here's some things that, that you should understand about this woman to sort of put yourself in this place. First off, the scene, I don't know why, but Matthew's not being fully descriptive of the scene, of exactly how this looked. Matthew's sort of getting right to the point and, and ignoring sort of like the, the, the plot. Um, if you look at um, Luke 8, he describes the story as, uh, he says, as Jesus was on his way, crowds almost crushed him. So there's tons and tons of people around. All of them want to hear what this traveling teacher, preacher, healer has to say, this Messiah figure. They're intrigued. They don't yet know what he's about, and, but, but they're like, they're into it. They want to hear more. And so they're all crushing around. Um, he described it as this woman fought, fights her way through the crowd to touch Jesus and be healed. And we're going to get to that in a second. Um, this is important to, to remember because also it sets the stage for this guy, Jairus. All these people saw what Jairus did, how he humbled himself and, and got rid of some of the, the honor that he had. Um, second, um, the, the Talmud writes about this disease that this woman had um, and actually offers up some cures for it, and they're really interesting. I wanted to, <laughs> I wanted to show you um, some of the things that people did to, to cure stuff back then. Um, some of them were like tonics and astringents that, that it says applied these things, and, and some of them may actually have been effective. We have no idea. Um, and, uh, but there's some superstitious remedies. This one's great. Um, one of the remedies to this constant bleeding for, uh, for this woman, it was... It was one was to carry the ashes of an ostrich egg in a linen bag in summer and a cotton bag in winter. Um, and another was to carry a barley corn, which had been found in the dung of a white female donkey, or as literally the text says, a she-ass. Um, and so there's, a, so there's these superstitious sort of ancient things that they were trying to get rid of this. Now, this would have been all of the things that it lists. It goes, there's like 13 of them that it lists. Um, some of them were very, very, very expensive, um, which is why the text um, in the book of Mark says she had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors, so she's going around trying everything she can to heal this thing. Um, she had spent all she had, all the money she had, um, yet instead of getting better, uh, she grew worse. So nothing's working. She's tried it all. Now she's broke, and uh, she's, she's, she's got no hope. She's done everything, and she's desperate, and so she's going to this... This, this, this man that she had heard about is traveling through healing people. Um, something about her disease that you may not realize that, that we lose the context of. We just think, well, she's sick and she needs healing. She's not just sick and in need of healing. She's unclean in the Jewish world. Any kind of bodily fluid, blood, anything like that made you unclean for a period of time. This woman has been bleeding for 12 years, uh, meaning she has been unclean for 12 years. This means something. It means she couldn't go into the temple to offer sacrifices. It means she couldn't go to the synagogue to hear teachings. She couldn't be a part of the community of worship. She couldn't enter into the houses of other people, lest it make their house unclean. She couldn't sit on any furniture. She couldn't, um, anything she touched would become unclean. Basically, nobody would have been around her. Nobody for 12 years, complete isolation by herself outside the city probably living in like a tent of some kind, all by herself. And not just that, um, 
it would have ruined any chances she ever had of getting married. Um, and that may not seem like a big deal to you today because um, we live in a completely different world. In the ancient patriarchal structure of the first century of the Bible times, if, you, if a woman didn't have a, like a, a, a man whom she bound herself to, she had no legal protection. She had no physical protection. She had nowhere, she couldn't own property, so she had nowhere she could live except in her father's house. It doesn't look like she's at her father's house at all. I mean, she's unclean. She would have had to move out anyways. So she, all basically the hopes of of this woman in the first century are gone. Meaning she also like, and if she was married when she contracted this, when this happened, she would have absolutely, after, after a while, she would have been divorced. Um... Not only that, she would not have ever had children, obviously. And then if you didn't have children, then you had no retirement plan. That was it. Your kids took care of you when they were grown. And so at some point, this woman would become older and more frail and and would lose some of her mobility and would lose her ability to move around and get food to feed herself. And there there was not any kind of welfare system because in that, Christians hadn't invented it yet. and she would have been just left to starve to death. They didn't, people of low class, unclean, people of no honor, there was not like a safety net where we fed people. They died of hunger and starvation right there in the city with everyone around them. Um, this woman was in, in dire need of healing. She's terrified. Um, And so, the passage uh, says this. um, Just then, the woman who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak. Now, um, I've I've talked about this a little bit before. Maybe some of you weren't here. I want to do a review of this. I think this is one of the most fascinating things um, in in the Gospels. It happens several times. I'm going to point out a few of them. So, she touches the edge of his cloak. Um, Why did she touch... Um, the edge of his cloak. Um, so back in Matthew chapter six, we talked about prayer. We talked about the prayer shawl. It comes from, the prayer shawl was this thing that the Jewish men would wear um, and it was white. It had, it had tassels with a, a, a blue thread in the edge of all the tassels and they use it for prayer, obviously. Um, Numbers 15 lays it out. It says, throughout the generations to come, you are to make tassels on the corners of your garments uh, with a blue cord on each tassel and you will have these tassels to look at it so you will remember all the commands of the Lord. So this, this, this prayer shawl, um, the tassels on it were called uh, tzitzit. Say that. Everyone say tzitzit. There you go. Fun. Um, okay. So this prayer shawl, basically, they would hold the edges of it and they would wrap it around their heads and they would pray. And when you wrapped it around your head, um, it was also called a tent. And so there's all these passages in the ancient scriptures that are like, let me dwell in the tent of the Lord forever. Jesus says, go into your prayer closet. And that's another thing that they would call it, your prayer closet, wrap yourself up. And, and so the, David at one point cries out and says, I just want to dwell in the house of the, of the Lord forever. And the word he uses is this word for this, for this garment. Um, and he's being chased after uh, people are trying to kill him. And he's saying, all I want is some peace. I just want to spend some time in meditation and prayer with God. That's all I want is to just sit and be with God for a while. I'm tired of running. I'm tired of fighting. Um, and so this language is all through scriptures. Now, um, the, the corners that the, that the seat seat are attached to, here, let's zoom in a little bit here. The co- wow, disoriented. Um, the edge here 
um, that these things are attached to is called the kanaf. It's like the corner, the edge of it. Um, kanaf is the Hebrew word for wings. Um, because when you'd go like this, you pick it up, it would look like you had wings, like you're flying. Um, and you'd wrap it around. And, and so the wings, um, there's this passage in the book of Malachi that says for, peop- for, for God's people who, who have great faith, he says, um, the sun will rise. Uh, it, it's basically a reference to the Messiah. He says, one will rise with healing in his wings. Um, it's specifically talking about the edge of the garment that Jesus is wearing, the prayer shawl. Um, Matthew says she, she just wanted to touch his clothes. Uh, Mark is a little more descriptive. Luke is a little more descriptive. It says, uh, no one could heal her. She came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak. He's very specific, the edge of his cloak. Why? Because the, for the Jewish people, this is, if he's the Messiah, this is like a theological argument, like, focus in on in this passage for the Jewish people. Like, this is the guy we've been waiting for. Jesus is Lord. That's what he's saying in this passage. Matthew, the, Matthew actually has a place in, in chapter 14 where it says, he's traveling to the countryside and it says, and when the man of that place recognized Jesus, they sent word to all the surrounding country, uh, country and people brought all their sick to him and begged him to let the sick just touch the edge of his cloak. They all knew this. This is general knowledge. They're like, the Messiah will have healing in his wings. It's not talking about, it's, it's not some big metaphor. They literally believed that if they touched the edge, the wings of the Messiah, they would find healing. Um, and all who touched it were healed. And so this language is all through there. I think it's, I think it's incredible. I think it's beautiful. I think it's fascinating. Um, and um, there's, there's one more thing in this passage. Um, let's go back to it. It says... Um, she says, if, if I only touch his cloak, I will be healed. And Jesus turned and saw her and said, take heart, daughter. Your faith has healed you. And the woman was healed at that moment. So there's a little discrepancy of when she was healed, this and that. Luke focuses in on, like, Jesus is the Messiah. So sometimes they took these creative liberties to, like, make a theological point. It's okay. It shouldn't mess with your faith. It's a thing ancient writings did. Um, something really important to, to me in this passage is that knowing that this woman had been alone for so long, knowing she had no male protection in her life, which is what she, what she would have wanted in the first century, um, knowing that she had been, everything that she had desired had been taken from her. She forces her way through this crowd. By the way, she wasn't allowed to be in this crowd. At some point, she stopped caring. She's like, look, I'm never going to be a part of these people. I've been rejected for 12 years. She forces her way into the crowd. Every single person that she touched, she would have made unclean as she touched them. And she walks up to Jesus and she touches the edge of his cloak, making Jesus unclean. And Jesus turns and looks at her and says, take heart, daughter. The first thing he says to her, he calls her his daughter. Instantly, everything that this woman desired in life was satiated in that moment. Everything that, that she had ever wanted and desired in life was found in Jesus because she had the faith to come to him and be made whole. Like the, the theological mountain that Matthew was building here is, is stunning. This is not just something that happened. This is something that Matthew argues is how it is. This happens. That when, you, when you're done with it all, the games, the, 
the worldly honor, everything that they're living for. He says, when you put your faith in Jesus, when Jesus becomes Lord, when you start looking at the world through the lens of, of the Messiah, he says, all of these things are found in him. All of these things you've been seeking. And anything else is idolatry, he would argue. Um, okay, so there's that. It's like a story within a bigger story. Let's go to the next one. Um, it's the finishing of the first story, verse 23 to 26. When Jesus entered the synagogue leader's house, so we're back to Jairus again and his daughter, uh, he saw the noisy crowd and the people playing pipes, and he said, go away. This girl's not dead, but asleep. And they laughed at him. But after the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took the girl by the hand, and she got up, and news of this spread throughout that region. So, um, where are we going to start? Okay, Jewish funeral customs. This is great. I love, this is the stuff I love, like all the, all the weirdness of the ancient world. Now, there was three funeral customs in an ancient first century Jewish wedding. Um, one of them was rending garments. Um, literally going to a funeral, like we put on our nicest clothes and we were very careful to iron them and make sure that, they, um, that they, we look presentable. They would literally go and just start ripping their clothes when they walked in the door and start wailing. Um, so this was actually a command to rend your garments, and there's, there's actually a lot of rules and regulations for how precisely to rend your garments in, a, in an effective mourning way. Um, so there were 39, literally 39 different rules and regulations for, for rending your garments. Um, rent, renting, rending, I don't know. It's rent is the word. Um, rent, the rent was to be made while standing. You have to stand up and then, and then like rip your shirt. Um, the clothes were to be rent to the heart so the skin was exposed. Like you had to rip it in a way that people saw skin. Okay, um, if you were a father or mother, you would rent over the heart. If you were anyone else, you would rent at, on your right side. I don't know where all this comes from. Who knows? Something happened at somewhere where they're like, yeah, we need a rule. <laughs> what, could, what could have happened? Who knows? Um, the rent must be big enough for a fist to be inserted into. Um, for seven days, the rent must be left open. So like seven days, you're walking around with holes in your clothes. Um, after that, you can, for 30 days, you can like loosely patch it. But it's still sort of, people will know, like, oh, you've been renting. What happened? Um, and then um, after that, they could sew it up and patch it. But then I love the picture of this uh, because in the first century, you had like one, one, maybe two pairs of clothes. And you would keep that as long as physically possible. So for years, you would have a little sort of memory of an occasion. You'd wear it on you uh, up here, over here, where, like... And you would, it would be like an external, like, like sign of like the journey you've been through, the things that you've experienced. And I love that. I think it's beautiful. Um, okay. Um, also, there would be whaling. There was literally professional whalers. That, whaler, not like whalers, <laughs> like whalers. Um, they, they were all, always women. They were, they were very, they were very good at it. Like they would, their whole points of being a whaler was to, to get you to cry at the funeral to get you to lose it, ugly cry. And so literally they would go around and they would study everyone who was going to come. They would learn everyone whom had died in their life and they would casually slip their names into conversation to like, yeah, to tug at the heartstrings and get you to cry. They would come and talk to you, put their arm around you and like cry with you and, and like coax it out of you. So by the time, like, at some, like everyone in the room is just bawling. It's like, a, it's like a walking episode of This Is Us. Like... <laughs> That was how it was. Um, people still do this today, by the way. Um, 
And then the third thing, so there's, there's renting of clothes, there's wailing, and then there is, um, the, the last thing is flute playing. I know we think of flutes as like, oh, it's like a happy thing. Um, somehow they can play the flute and make it super sad. Um, and there was like rules set out for how many flutes you had to have at a funeral. Um, so here's a passage from the Talmud that sort of brings all this together, commanding this is exactly how you should mourn at a funeral. It says, the husband is bound to bury his dead wife and to make lamentations and mourning for her according to the customs of all countries. And also the very poorest among the Israelites will not allow her less than two flutes and one wailing woman. Um, but if he be rich, let all things be done according to his qualities. So there's all these crazy things that were part of this. So Jesus walks in. Um, it says, uh, when Jesus entered the synagogue leader's house and saw the noisy crowds, everyone's crying, everyone's sobbing. The whalers are high-fiving. They killed it. Um, people are playing pipes. Um, <laughs> it seems like a crazy scene. And he says, he literally walks in and says, everyone go away. She's not dead. I hate to break up the party, but she's not dead. And then they start laughing at him. So, like, chaos is abounding. The girl's not dead but asleep. They laughed at him. But after the crowds had been put outside, he pushes them all outside. Um, he went in. And took the girl by the hand, again, making himself unclean. Um, And she got up, and news of this spread throughout all the nation. Now, Matthew sometimes is very succinct with the way he writes these things. There's a reason for that. Matthew actually uses a literary device here, and actually all three synoptic gospels use this device. It's called an inclusio, and I can show it to you mainly by, by sort of drawing on here a little bit. So we have... So the blue is, is the beginning of the story to the end of the story, the whole thing. And then it sort of is shaped like a sandwich, like there's something in the middle there, right? So the one story starts, and then another story sort of enters in, and it starts and is resolved. And then the same story that started earlier is finished. The reason ancient writers would do this is because they want you to not separate these stories and ponder them separately. They are to be looked at together. They are to be pondered and debated about in the synagogues because the Christians in that day were part of the synagogue. They were considered a sect of Judaism. Um, And they would be debated in the churches and the synagogues, what is the meaning of this as a whole? Why are these two things bound together? And so one of the exercises, and I would argue for you, one of the exercises when you're reading scripture and you see something like this, like pay attention, maybe look run a Google search for inclusios in the Bible, um, and then maybe spend some time sitting and pondering, why are these things stuck together? What could this possibly mean? And do some research into it. Um, so here, I, I want to point out a few things that people have, conclusions that people have come to um, over the years. Um, so if you, were a, if you were a Jewish Christian, Messianic Jewish today, um, Jewish Christian in the, in the first century, um, your eyes would have been drawn to, you would have read pretty much all the texts that you could get. So you would have probably read all the synoptic gospels about this passage. Your eyes would have been drawn to a lot of, oftentimes the numerical things that are thrown in there. Um, there is, in Luke chapter 12, uh, I'm sorry, in, the, in Luke's account, he, he mentions that the girl's 12 years old. Um, uh, uh, all three of them mention the woman has been bleeding for 12 years. Um, 12 is obviously a significant number to the Jewish people. 
Um, numbers in general are really important to the Jewish people. Every time you see the word 40, it's got a specific thing. Uh, it means something else is about to change, and this is a time of like immersion and baptism into sort of struggle, death, 40 years in the wilderness, um, 40 years on a boat as the, as the earth is flooded. Um, uh, the, the mikvah, again, was measure, 40 measures. You were baptized in the mikvah, 40 measures of water. Um, so all these numbers were incredibly important. So they would instantly, their eyes would be drawn to, oh, there's a 12 there. What does this mean? Um, and they would ponder this. And they would see, okay, so for the, let's see, 12, 12 tribes of Israel. What is the message to Israel? Obviously, this is a message to Israel. By the way, Jesus, there's a reason there's 12 disciples. I mean, Jesus really did have, he had 12 disciples, and then he had 72 disciples, and then he had like 500 disciples around, but the inner circle is 12. The reason it's 12 is because he's speaking to the Jewish people. He says, new king, new kingdom, new Lord. There's a specific reason why all these numbers are chosen. Um, And so in the mind of the Jewish reader, uh, there's a symbol of God's people here, 12 tribes of Israel, uh, the children of Abraham once dead like this girl, um, and Jesus is here to bring them back to life. All right, so there's that. Um, and, then, and then 12 is used for, for both women. So the, the unclean woman, bleeding for 12 years, God's people, unclean and impure, rejected in isolation, in exile, over and over, currently in exile from God through the Roman occupation. And the Jewish people would say, uh, Jesus is here to heal us, to make us clean again, to make us whole again, and to be the new Lord. So these are some things that the Jewish people would pull out of this text. Um, but beyond that, there's other things that, that link these two women together. Um, if you were a, if, if you're like reformed, a reformed Christian, um, there's some specific words that are used. The word sozane, the, the root of that word, it, it's the word that means salvation. It's used for both of these women. Um, for the girl, it says she will live, she will be saved. Uh, for the grown woman, it's, it's your faith has saved you is, is the word that he uses. We translate it to healed because um, we sometimes, when we're translating the scriptures, we're trying to pick like, this word could mean three things. I think this is probably the best context. But if you read it in the Greek, it literally says your faith has saved you. Um, and so there's this emphasis on faith. Both of them exercise this intense faith. So the, the Jewish leader in the synagogue humbles himself, throws off the expectations that the world has for him, throws off the religious expectations that, that his spiritual elders have for him, the honor that he had. He's like, nothing matters. All that matters is my daughter, and I have faith that Jesus can heal her. And so he throws off all the idols in his life and puts his faith in Jesus. He literally takes them off and puts Jesus there and, and runs to Jesus, making an utter fool of himself breaking all kinds of like Jewish laws, even especially in asking Jesus to touch his daughter. And this woman also, faith in Christ, not in anything around her. She's given up all the remedies of the world. She's given up everything. She um, is breaking all the religious rules, forcing her way through the crowd, making all kinds of people unclean, making this Jesus unclean by grabbing his garments. And Jesus doesn't care. He says, these two get it. By saying Jesus is Lord, what you're saying is all these other things are not, and you have put your faith in this particular way. And so these people, these two women, there is salvation there through throwing off sort of the idols of the world, all right? So this is more like what the, the Reformed theologians have pulled out of this. Um, <clears throat> and if you're like a, a mainline or an Orthodox uh, Christian, there's some other things you're going to see. 
um, you're really going to focus on the uncleanliness. So literally, Jared says, come and touch my daughter. You'll, and, and again, he'll be made unclean. Um, she touched the edge of his cloak. She makes him unclean. Down here, he obviously touches the girl's hand and is made unclean. Um, in, in the Orthodox sort of tradition, both instances, Jesus just willingly, willingly lowers himself and makes himself of, of ill repute to religious people to save and bring healing to other people whom they have, they have not been able to do anything for. Um, in neither case does Jesus care that he's going to be made unclean, nor does he try to hide it. And actually, at one point, Jesus, in, in one of the other um, tellings of the story in the Synoptic Gospels, um, Jesus literally draws attention to the fact that he's just been made unclean on purpose. He says, he's, it says he's pushing through the crowd and someone, someone touches, the woman touches him. And he says, who touched me? And the disciples are like, we're all touching you. We're like crowding in, crushing you. And he's like, no, no, no. You're touching me, but someone else touched me. Who was it? I want everyone to see who this was. And the crowd parts and the woman steps forth and he says, this woman touched me. He's basically proclaiming I have been made unclean like this woman. And when your Lord and Savior is made unclean, then what do you do? Well, it changes your whole understanding of what actually God intends to do. Jesus is replacing this morality and this purity sort of clause of of their religion and making the center of it not morality but compassion. He's literally changed their, he's changing their understanding of what God wants in the world. I don't, just like the prophets, I don't desire sacrifices. I desire compassion and justice to roll. And Jesus is embodying that. He's like, I don't care about your sacrifices and your rules and your, all of that. None of that matters to me, how you view me. What matters is that I have compassion in my heart. What matters is not how you view me, it's how I view the people around me. And he, he just shifts the whole thing and takes it in a whole new direction. So the ethics of purity have been replaced by politics of compassion. Um, and you know what? There's a lot of people who, whose own ethics and morality keep them from Jesus. They don't realize it, but their own ethics, their own morality, they keep them from actually coming to Christ. Um, and there are others who, um, who are kept away from the body of Christ because of their moral impurities who would say, no, you can't come to Christ. You've got a lot of impurities that you need to clean up before you come to Christ. And Jesus says that, no, 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 no. I didn't make a spectacle of myself in a crowd so that you could keep this woman from me. I didn't just want this woman to be healed. I wanted everyone to see how God heals people and the kind of people that God is in to bringing into his own. So <clears throat> there's a lot more that, I, that I've seen it in Christian interpretation throughout the years that people have pulled out of this passage. There's so much there. Um, but the question I have is, what about us? What do, what do we need from this passage? I would, argue, I would argue what we need to see from this passage and all the passages around it, and, and from the entire book of Matthew, actually, is a foundational idea that when we look at Jesus, when we read these stories about Jesus, what we should be reading is how the church behaves in the world as well. All of the things that Jesus did, he's literally, he's the body of Christ. This woman 
through drawing near to the body, the actual physical body of Christ, she found freedom from her ostracism. She found cleanliness again. She found a father. She found family. She found healing. All of the things that she found in Christ, in Christ's, in his body, in this world, those are the things that she should have also found in the church. In us, because we are now the body of Christ. Jesus has no body here except for us. And so when we read these stories of these people being healed, of Jesus moving into the unclean people's houses, um, of people who have been rejected by all of society as disgusting and sinners and morally of ill repute, and then Jesus literally, he sits down to dinner with them, meaning he's sharing his identity with them and his status. That should be the church. In the church, people should find freedom freedom from all of this ostracism, all of this um, rejection. They should find family. They should find shelter. They should find home with us. And any attempts to push people out and try to create this pure, sterile sort of thing, all that does is turns us into the exact thing that Jesus was working against. Jesus knows that what people need, what, what, what people need and the things that, that will make them whole, even this, this idea of holiness, we want people to live holy lives. Jesus knows they don't find that apart from the body of Christ. When they come to the body of Christ, they are guided into this life. And it's not instant. It may take a long time. It may take years. But they are slowly, as they become part of the body of Christ, the spirit of God grabs hold of them. I believe that. Um, so their brokenness begins to be made whole. When we look at Jesus going to this, this girl and, and touching her and healing her, um, this is the kind of stuff the church should be doing. We work for the wholeness and for the healing of all people. Every part of them. Of course, their soul. Of course. We're a church. That's, that's one of the main focuses that we have. But also... Also, um, their physical health and well-being, the things that they struggle with, we should be working with doctors, with um, healthcare workers to bring healing to people. Um, we should be working with mental health specialists to bring healing to the mind, um, healthy emotions. And so we start things like counseling centers and we, in some way, try to heal all the things that are broken because we believe this is in the interest of the mission of God. God is in the business of healing and fixing all that is lost and all that is broken. And everything that both of these women have lost, he is in the business of giving back to them. This is what the church should be doing as well. When we read these stories of what Jesus is doing, we should see ourselves and we should say, well, I'm not, I'm not doing that. We are not doing that. If we are failing at something, we admit it and we repent and we liken ourselves more and more to Jesus every time. And so I think what I have for you this week is, is this little bit of a lens through which to read the stories of Jesus. Um, maybe you should spend some time this week sitting and pondering this story as a whole. What else do you see? What else is there? What is your faith tradition sort of pulled out of all of this? Put it together. Look at it as one big thing and, and search your heart, your soul, your tradition, the scriptures, um, the spirit of God for the meaning there that it has for you. Um, 
because God meets people exactly where they are, where they came from. And so we're going to spend some time in communion. Um, our communion servers, you guys can go take the elements and you can spread around the room um, if you'd like. And um, we, uh, we're going to spend some time in prayer individually, collectively, if you would like to, if you'd like to gather with a couple of people and spend some time in prayer. Through these, room, uh, through these two doors on the left, there's a prayer room if you need prayer. Um, and uh, somebody should be there to join you and to uh, help pray with you. Um, and basically, there's two elements in communion. There's bread. It's the body of Christ broken for you. There's wine. It's the blood of Christ spilled for you. All of this for your healing, for your wholeness. In every one of the, these stories that we read, Jesus is pouring himself out in some way for these people. In this particular story, he's throwing off the identity of the world. He's saying, I don't, I don't need to be viewed with honor. I don't need to be viewed as even morally upright. I don't really care. I want to be viewed as a person with compassion. That's how, that's how God wants us to view people. And so part of this is we're, we're looking and contemplating all the ways that, that Jesus was poured out for us. And then we ask that he would reveal to us ways that we can pour ourselves out for other people. So let's spend some time in prayer and take communion, shall we? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this place and these people. Guide us, make us whole. Help us to understand that the way you walked in this world is the way we collectively, as a family, as a church, as a community, should walk in this world. I ask that, um, that uh, the rejected would find family here. I ask that uh, the broken and the sick would find healing here. I ask that uh, we would somehow learn to embody um, the incarnation of, of you in this world again in our church. Let us die to ourselves. Let us pour ourselves out, um, our identity, our treasure, all of it, uh, for healing for those around us. Let, us. let us view the world through eyes not of morality, but through, of, uh, through eyes of compassion. See them. Let us see them the way that you do. Thank you. In your name. Amen. Take some time. Talk to Jesus.